Father, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of this day. We pray that what we do and what we say and how we worship you is pleasing to you. Father, we desperately want to be found worthy of your calling and please you in all that we do. And we pray that you would give us a greater sense of devotion and dedication and faith and zeal and passion for you and for your truth. That you would give us a greater temperance and self-control. That we would would mold our our lives and our, our ways according to your word. Father, we thank you now for all the blessings. We know that all good things come from you. And we ask all this in the name of your Son and our soon-coming King, Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is a blessing to see everybody here today. Before I um, get into the message, I want to, two things. Uh, number one, I wanted to say I enjoyed that uh, special this uh, just a few moments ago. And I, I think Nathan was did a great job there. So um, appreciate that. And um, as you'll see on the slide, we're, we're not going to focus on the fruits of the Spirit today. We're going to pick that up next, uh, next time I speak, near the end of the month. So uh, today I want to give a message. It is a reason for the uh, season, if you will, and that is uh, the truth behind Christmas. You know, what if I told you that when it comes to this celebration, much of what is taught is very different from what we find biblically? It is believed by the vast majority that Christmas represents a time of the Messiah's birth when he was born to the world. They will say that he was born on December 25th and that his birth was witnessed by three wise men and shepherds. Now the truth is something very different and we know that. And you know, the reality is most ministers know that. Most who preach behind the pulpit knows the truth of Christmas. They know that December 25th is not the birthday of the Messiah and that this day was adopted from paganism. For most people, though, these unavoidable facts really don't matter. They justify it with years of tradition and also say that it's for the kids or for the family, for the loved ones. They believe that the one they worship will simply look beyond the roots, look beyond the heresy, the paganism, as we find, as we'll review, and uh, see favor in what they're doing. Or we know that's not the case, though, as Yahweh's people. We know that our Father in Heaven does not condone pagan worship, that He does not condone worship that's blended or synchronized with other worship. In fact, we find many scriptures condemning this practice, again, of syncretism, this concept of blending different beliefs. I want to look, just look at a few. We're going to do this fairly quickly here, just to understand what Yahweh says within his word. So several passages uh, from the Old Testament, some from the New. Leviticus 18, verse 3 says this, After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein you dwelt, shall you not do. You know, I'm not sure how plainer Yahweh could have been. I'm not sure what more he could have said to convey this message that just as Egypt was doing, you're not to mimic that. You're not to do that. He says, after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall you not do. Again, a very emphatic statement from our Father in heaven. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances or their ways. So Yahweh here, he's giving an explicit warning to Israel of old. He says, look, just as we saw in Egypt, just as you will see in the land of Canaan, 
Don't do that. Don't follow in those ways. Don't worship in that way. Don't mimic what they're doing. You worship me as I define it within the word. And you know, when you go to Israel and you see these sites, the the land of Canaan, well, that's the promised land, much of it anyway, and, and we know that the Canaanites did some horrific things, some horrific things, and we know that Israel, inevitably, they followed in these ways, even though Yahweh said not to do it. So that's one example. Let's look at another example. Leviticus 20, verse 23 says this, something very similar. It says, you shall not walk in the manners of the nations, which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and I therefore, and therefore I abhorred them. You know, this last statement here says a lot to me. When Yahweh says that I abhorred something, that's something we should take note of. And Yahweh says here that he abhorred the way the nations worshipped, that he removed from the land. And you know, the truth is, so much of worship today is borrowed from this same paganism as we find historically and anciently. So Yahweh says, number one, don't follow their ways, don't worship as they worshiped, don't, don't again mimic in the way they worship their false deities, because he says, these things I abhorred, I hated, I despised. Again, I'm not sure what more he could have said. I'm not sure what language he could have used that would have been more emphatic. But Yahweh says here, again, that he abhorred these. Deuteronomy 12, 30 through 31 says something very similar. It says, Thou shalt not do so unto Yahweh Elohim. For every abomination, every abomination to Yahweh, which he hates, have they done. And again, this is referring to the people of the land, the Canaanites and those within the promised land. He says, they done unto their mighty ones, for even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their mighty ones, to Molech. They would take their child and place it within the arms of this deity, where it would then roll into the fires and burn. Lord, loud drums and whatnot would be, would be played to sound out the screams and the cries. Again, it's an abomination. It says, What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add it thereto, nor diminish from it. So again, same message. Yeah, I was telling the Israelites of old, don't mimic, don't follow, don't worship as the people of the land. Now, he says something here. He uses a word here that I think we need to really kind of pay attention to, and that is abomination. You know, when we understand this word, and the meaning behind it within the Hebrew, we realize how Yahweh loathed, loathed, hated the practices we find here. It is literally, if you look at the Hebrew, it, is, it conveys a, 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 something that is disgusting, something that he absolutely abhors. And the way they were worshiping, as we see here, was an abomination. And again, Yahweh said, don't do it. Don't mimic. Don't, don't blend my word with, with this pagan worship. And we also see some examples in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. It says, But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to sacrifice to devils and not to Elohim, and I would not that you should have fellowship with the devils. 
You see, when it comes to worship, there is a right way, there is a wrong way. If we're not worshiping according to Yahweh's way, if we're not worshiping based on his word and and how he defines worship, we're not worshiping as he commands. And as a result, we're worshiping in a wrong way. And inevitably, I believe that when we refuse to worship Yahweh's way, when we're following some sort of foreign worship, some pagan worship, worship that is outside the word of our Father in heaven, that we are worshiping, as it says here, devils. And it says here that we should have no fellowship with devils. So again, whether Old or New Testament, Yahweh is emphatic. Yahweh underscores this concept that we are to worship him and him alone. And we are not to deviate. We are not to change. We are not to compromise. We are not to diminish. We are not to adopt that which is outside of his word. Now this is one of my favorite passages. And certainly we find this concept here that we are to make a separation so 1 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, it says, Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, by the way, this would include in, in how we worship, and especially in how we worship. You know, worship, there's nothing more important. There's nothing more important than the worship of our, of our Father in heaven. He says, For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord has Messiah with Belial, euphemism for satan the devil he says look there's nothing in common there's nothing in common and as believers we must make a distinction we cannot worship we cannot participate in the worship that deviates from the truth of our father in heaven paul goes on to say or what part hath he that believes with an infidel or an unbeliever and what agreement hath the temple of elohim with idols you see and, and we see the same thing today, I believe, in the church. You know, they've deviated so far from Yahweh's word. So much of what we see is foreign to Scripture. For you are the temple of the living Elohim. And he's explaining now why it's so important that we worship Yahweh as he specifies within his word. Because we are, Scripture says, the living temples. Because the Holy Spirit, those immersed in Yahshua's name, we are the living temples of Elohim, And for that reason, he says here, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. Now, here's the important part here for this message. He says, wherefore come out from among them and be you separate. So you see, we, we, have, a, we have a passage conveying that we must remove ourselves from worship that deviates that is foreign to our father's word we're not to participate with worship that doesn't that doesn't correspond and that doesn't that, that, that is not in line with the truth of our father in heaven so he says here that we are to separate ourselves from that and he says touch not the unclean thing and i will receive you and i will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters says yahweh almighty so we uh, see here that, number one, again, we're told and shown that, that we're not to participate with those items that does not or would not be in line with Yahweh's word. And we see that through a series of, of parallels or, or we see a contrast. For instance, he says, what is righteousness and unrighteousness have in common? What fellowship is there between these two? And, and 
probably the most um, clear here is what concord has Messiah with Belial, or what what commonality do we see between Yahshua and the evil one? Or there is none. You know, there is a stark difference between the two, and as believers, we are to also show that difference in, in how we worship. It is so important that we realize that we must make a separation, that we must make a division when it comes to the worship of our Father in heaven. We cannot compromise. We cannot make concessions. We cannot participate. We must remove ourselves from anything foreign to Yahweh's word. And that would include much of what we see within, within nominal worship today. So we see here many, many passages conveying the same thing, this concept, this notion that as believers, we're not to engage, participate, or adopt this synchronistic way of worship, that we are to worship Yahweh as he defines within his word. Again, as we saw from the Old Testament, it says that he abhors these things. He loathes these things. So as believers, we're to abstain from that. Now, there's one other passage I want to turn to, and then we're going to get into the the uh, history of Christmas and explain why we should not be observing this time. But Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2, it's almost as if Yahweh wrote this specifically for this time of year. So Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2 through 5, it says, Thus saith Yahweh, learn not the way of the heathen. And you know, I always tell people, we should as believers be able to stop right there, and that should be sufficient. That should be enough. Yahweh says, don't learn the ways of the heathen. What more does he have to say? And yet people learn the ways of the heathen. And not only do they learn them, they mimic and they adopt and apply them. goes on to say, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. Don't be concerned about those things. For the heathen are dismayed or concerned at them. For the customs of the people are vain. Vain, meaning they're worthless. There, there's, no, there's no value there. It says, For one cuts a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They are upright as a palm tree, but speak not. They must needs to be born, because they cannot go. Neither be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. Now, what does this sound like to you? <laughs> you know, for me, it sounds an awful lot like a Christmas tree. Now, even though I know this isn't the case, I think we would all agree that the comparisons here are striking. Isn't it amazing, the parallels we find here? talks about cutting down a tree, taking that tree, fastening that tree with nails and hammers, decorating it with silver and gold. Well, this is precisely what we find today. Now realize that even though this isn't referring to uh, the modern-day Christmas tree, there's still a connection. There's still a connection here to be made. We know that the Christmas tree is a form of a tree worship. And as believers, we're not to mimic this worship. But you know, all of this really is a moot point, whether it is or isn't, because again, Jeremiah says here, emphatically, he says, learn not the way of the heathen. Learn not the way of the heathen. In other words, don't do as a heathen don't, don't worship as they worship. Or this obviously would include, include Xmas or Christmas. I want to move on now and talk about the tradition of, of Christmas, talk about this day, go back and, 
explain why we don't observe this day and and uh, why we as believers should abstain from observing this time. You know, probably the most important point, or one of the most important points, is that nobody really knows when Yahshua was born. And shockingly, amazingly, uh, scholarship, historians freely admit this. So I want to share this. I want to open up to the New Catholic Encyclopedia, of all things. And it says this, it says, inexplicably, though it seems the date of Christ's birth is not known. The Gospels indicate neither the day nor the month. Think about this for just a moment. Think about what we find here. You know, historically, who established the date for the Messiah's birth? It was the Roman church. The Roman church established the date for the Messiah's birth, and yet we find here that the very source responsible for this date is confirming that the actual date is unknown. Nobody knows the day or the month when Yahshua was born. And we also see this same truth from the Encyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. I've practiced that over the years. Here's what it says. The fathers of the first three centuries do not speak of any special observance of the nativity. No corresponding festival was presented by the Old Testament. Of course, we know that. It says the day a month of the birth of Christ is nowhere stated in the gospel history and cannot be certainly determined. Now, again, think about what we find here. It says here that the fathers of the first three centuries spoke nothing, nothing about the celebration of the nativity. So we see here that Christmas was unknown to the very men who oversaw the church for the first 300 years. Doesn't that seem strange to you? Doesn't that seem odd that such an important day would have been unknown to the very men who governed the church for so long? The fact is, there was no knowledge within the early church of Christmas. There was no knowledge, there was no practice of Christmas, of the Messiah's birth. This came, as we'll see, much, much later. So if the day for the Messiah's birth is unknown, how then did they arrive on the date of December 25th? And, you know, I'm going to say this real quickly, too. This concept of what we find with December 25th and how they arose at this date is is also indicative of so many other things we find within the church. You see, they borrowed so much from the pagan world. So many beliefs, so much of the theology we find within the church, whether it be the Roman church or other denominations, are rooted within man's worship and not Yahweh's worship. So again, how was this day chosen? How did they ascertain, how did they choose December 25th for the date of the Messiah's birth? Where this day was chosen in connection to sun worship. Shockingly, sun worship. Now, even though sun worship goes all the way back to Babylon, today I want to focus mainly on the time of Rome, because it was during this time that the church adopted this uh, worship from the Romans to represent, again, the birth of the Messiah. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were at least, and maybe more, but at least three observances that led, influenced uh, 
this date for Xmas. These were Saturnalia, Mithraism, and Sol Invictus. Now I want to begin with Saturnalia. What is this? So what do we know about this day? Well, here's what we find from one source. This is the Encyclopedia Americana. Notice all these are very reputable sources. This isn't some internet site. No, these are reputable sources that we're looking at. So the Encyclopedia Americana, volume 24, page 136, or 316, says, Saturnalia, a Roman festival commemorating the happy period under Saturn. When freedom and equality reigned and violence and oppression were unknown, it probably originated as a harvest celebration. Under the Caesars, it was celebrated from the 17th to the 23rd of December, during which period public businesses ceased, masters and slaves changed places, and feasting, giving of gifts, and general license prevailed. So we see here that Saturnalia was celebrated, was honored, and the honor was given to Saturn, which was observed from December 17th through the 23rd. Do you believe it was only a coincidence that these dates closely correspond with Christmas, with December 25th? Well, I can assure you there is no coincidence here. There is no happen chance here. This was done very willfully. This was done very willfully. Now, how was this time observed? What do we find here? We see here that it was a time of Happiness, it says, in equality. We see here that masters and slaves would trade places. Gifts would be given. And feasts and dinners were held with families. Does this sound familiar with Christmas? Do we see these items during this Xmas celebration? Of course we do. We see family meals as a big part. In fact, I've counseled many, many believers with Christmas meals and It's always a hard thing to to, um, overcome. Also here, the giving of gifts. We certainly see that with the celebration of this um, holiday. So here's some more information about this uh, feast, the Saturnalia. This is from the Standard American Encyclopedia, Volume 11. It says, Saturnalia, the feast in honor of Saturn... Celebrated by the Romans in December and regarded as a time of unrestrained license and merriment for all classes, even for the slaves. Hence, any time but noisy license and rivalry, unrestrained, licentious merry-making. So this is a description again of this Saturnalia. We again see that it was to honor this god of Saturn. We also see here that it was a time of a noisy license, it says, and rivalry is... You know, for this reason, many historians will even compare this Roman festival to Mardi Gras or New Year's because it wasn't a time of somber contemplation as some will observe Xmas today. No, it was a time of parties. It was a time of gifts. It was a time of dinners. It was a time when society would, would change places and change roles, a time of peace as we find and many other sources. But again, as we see here, it was also drinking and, and engaging in excess and immorality. Now, it uses the word licentious here to describe this time, just to give you an understanding of what this means. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines this word as lacking legal or moral restraints. 
So we see here that it was not just a time of of somber gift-giving, of just showing love and peace to one another. No, it was a time when the Roman world was turned upside down and when people were allowed to do things that they would not naturally do, to practice immorality. So as we see here, the historical roots of Exmus are not as solemn as many believe. This had nothing to do with solemnity or something solemn. Again, in fact, many historians will, again, draw this comparison between Mardi Gras and New Year's for that reason. It comes from a pagan feast that was steeped in corruption, decadence, and immorality. Now, another festival that helped solidify December 25th was Mithraism. What do we know about a Mithraism? We know that this actually goes all the way back to the uh, ancient world in Persia. In fact, here's what we find from the new, encycli- in, uh, new standard encyclopedia. This is volume 18, pages 291 through 292. Mithras, or Mithra, a Perso-Iranian divinity whose worship after passing through several changes and transformations spread itself for a time for beyond the limits of its native seed. In the Zendavesta, or sacred writings of the ancient Persians, this was Zoroasterism at that point, Mithras appeared as chief of the Isids, or good genii, the Lord, it says, of all countries. After the Persian conquest of Assyria and Babylonia, Mithras became the sun god, and was represented by the orb of the day. So here we see a connection directly with sun worship in this Mithraism. It says, which was worshipped in his name. This religion was introduced into Rome in 68 BC by some Sicilian pirates whom Pompey had captured. So as we see here, the worship of Mithra goes actually back to Persia, according to the Zendavesta, Mithra was a chief deity within Zoroasterism, the Persian religion. And as this religion spread into Assyria and Babylonia, Mithra was connected, it says here, to sun worship. So it changed, it morphed. You know, we see that. It's amazing how often we see that in the ancient world. A deity will go from one nation or one culture, one civilization to another, and they will maybe change the name. They will modify maybe how it's observed or worshipped or honored. But really, it's the same thing. And this is, that's what we find here with, with Mithra. But we see that as it spread, that it took upon more of a solar deity, a, a sun deity, as we say. Now, in uh, 68 BC, we, or CE, we find here that it came in connection with Rome. Now, what connection, though, do we find with December 25th or with the birth of the Messiah and Mithra? Well, we know one of the major factors is that, according to historians, Mithra's birthday was December 25th. On December 25th, they worshipped the birthday of this deity. And there's no doubt that this was a major factor in the acceptance of December 25th for the birthday or the birth of the Messiah. We know that Mithraism was a major religion also during the early church. According to some historians, for a short time, it even rivaled Christianity. Now, there's some dispute and debate on that among scholars, but some will say that Mithra was such a, uh, was such a powerful influence at one point that it even 
possibly could have overtaken Christianity. Now, we know that did not happen, but it was a major force. And this is, again, one reason why the church adopted December 25th as a date for the Messiah's birth, this, this influence of Mithraism. Now, there's a third system, and really this probably had the most influence on Christmas that we find historically, and that is Sol Invictus, Sol Invictus. In Latin, this means unconquered sun, Sol Invictus, unconquered sun. Now, here's a description of this worship from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, you think about it. Again, we're talking and we're looking and we're reviewing reputable sources. I'm not going to Internet articles. I'm not going to Facebook. No, I'm going to reputable articles, reputable sources. And this, in this case, it is the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it's describing the worship in the connection to December 25th in this Sol Invictus. So it goes on to say this. During the latter periods of Roman history, so during near the end, sun worship gained an importance and ultimately led to what has been called a solar monotheism. Nearly all the gods of the period were possessed of solar qualities, and both Christ and Mithra acquired the trace of solar deities. The feast of Sol Invictus, open unconquered sun, based on the Latin, on December 25th was celebrated with great joy, and eventually the state was taken over by the Christians as Christmas, the birthday of Christ, it says. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it says here that Christianity adopted this day for the Messiah's birth. So in addition to Saturnalia and Mithraism, we find here a third observance, again, that helped solidify December 25th as a birthday for the Messiah. Now realize that Sol Invictus was nothing more than sun worship repackaged. So much of the history with Christmas is all about the sun and sun worship and, and this rebirth and fertility as we find throughout the ancient world. According to what it says here, Rome at this point, later in the history of Rome, says that many consider this time as a solar monotheism. What does this mean, solar monotheism? Or the word solar refers to the sun, monotheism refers to the worship of one deity. So we find here that sun worship became the dominant religion, if you will, of that time, that the vast majority was worshiping the sun. And again, Christianity, they were in existence, and they were trying to combat this influence. And as we see here, it says that they adopted this date, this time for Christmas, very specifically states. And again, this is the Encyclopedia Britannica. This is not the internet. This is not the book of Randy. This is not Wikipedia. This is the Encyclopedia Britannica confirming, verifying that Christianity adopted Christmas based on the worship of Sol Invictus on December 25th. You know, we also see hints of sun worship even today within the modern church. Let me give you some examples. It's common to see saints with, with halos upon their head or discs, sun discs upon their head. Also Sunday, the day that replaced the Sabbath, the true Sabbath, comes from the Latin dia solus, meaning day of the sun. You know, in fact, we know that it was Emperor Constantine, a known sun worshiper. You know, some, they will, uh, they will praise Constantine as a champion of Christianity. The historical fact is, supposedly, Christianity accepted 
where Constantine accepted Christianity on his deathbed, supposedly. I'm a little bit skeptical of that. But we certainly know that historically he did not accept it prior to that point. He continued worshiping Sol Invictus. In fact, there's coins with Sol Invictus on one side and Constantine on the other. He was a worshiper of this deity, and he is also the one who solidified Sunday as a day of worship. Now, from the New International Dictionary, the Christian Church, we find just how strong this influence was. Page 223 from this source, it says December 25th was a date of the Roman pagan festival inaugurated in 724-7274 as the birthday of the unconquered sun, or Sol Invictus, which at the winter solstice begins around to show an increase in light. Sometime before 336, the Roman or the church in Rome, unable to stamp out this pagan observance for this festival, spiritualized it, they repackaged it, as the feast of the nativity of the S-U-N of righteousness. And as we see here in 274C, Rome officially commemorated December 25th as the birthday of Sol Invictus, or the birthday of the sun. And about 60 years later, unable to stamp out this influence, the Roman church decided to simply adopt this date for the Messiah's birth. Now, why was this done? Or again, more than anything else, it was self-preservation. It was a threat. And also for growth. They wanted to bring in the members. They wanted to bring in the masses. And sometimes, most often, to bring in the masses, you have to compromise. In fact, you know, I've, as a side note, I've had people ask me over the years, how can you guys possibly be right with being so few in number? And I've gotten pretty good about answering that, and that is, you show me a time in history when the majority has been right. And I can assure you they will not find a time in history when the majority was ever right. The majority's never been right. Was the majority right when eight souls were saved from the flood out of possibly hundreds of thousands of people? No. Was the majority right during the time of Rome when you have 12 faithful apostles? No. Never in the history of mankind has a majority been right. So if you're asked, how can you be right and the majority wrong, or simply ask, when in the history of mankind has a majority ever been right? And I can assure you they're not going to be able to give an answer if they know their history. The majority's never been right. You know, in some ways, what the church did reminds me of old Jeroboam. You know, we all know the story. In Israel, there was a split after the death of Solomon. There was a split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam took the southern. Jeroboam took the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes. And immediately, Jeroboam, because he was afraid of losing power and losing his head, he compromised and put in place a counterfeit worship immediately. And you know, the sad part about that is, as we even talked about in the Bible study, Israel never, never recovered. And that's the amazing thing. Israel never recovered. They had king after king after king after king, and they all followed after the pattern that Jeroboam gave previously. And that's why the church did what it did. It was for power and influence and growth. Now, not all, though, within the church accepted this day, 
known as Christmas. Some opposed it. Some opposed this time. I want to read from a book. It's entitled Celebrations, page 312. And it provide some history here on the Puritans. It says, in England, the Puritans could not tolerate... Now listen to this. I want you to really listen to what it says here. The Puritans could not tolerate the celebrating for which there was no biblical sanction. What an amazing statement. It says, consequently, the Roundhead Parliament of 1643 outlawed the Feast of Christmas, Easter, Whitsuntide, along with the Saints' Day. You know, as we see here, the Puritans in 1643 outlawed both Christmas and Easter. Notice the reason for this. Why was this done? Why did they take this initiative to prohibit and ban these days? Where it says here they did this because there was no biblical sanction. Let that roll in your head for a while. There was no biblical sanction. And for that reason, they... They refused. They refused to observe this day. Can you imagine how worship today would change if every believer would take this same bold stand? If every believer would reflect and ask, am I worshiping in a way that I can verify in Scripture? And if not, I'm going to change. You know, almost everything in the church would change the day they worship, the holidays they worship on, so much of their theology. It's amazing that the error we see in, see in nominal worship, and that's why we must make a difference as believers and not participate in that. You know, this is such a great example for believers, and it doesn't matter what denominations or affiliations we are. The concept of us evaluating what we believe based on the fact of does it have biblical sanction is such a great example. You know, if we're evaluating our beliefs, we should be asking this same thing because the only thing that really matters, as I think we know here, is what does Yahweh say within his word? doesn't matter what I believe. doesn't matter what you believe. doesn't matter if you offend me or if I offend you in many ways. The only thing that matters is what Yahweh says within his word. You know, in some ways, I would hope that we would all have the opinion that we may, we, we would rather be offended and to know the truth than to not be offended and not to know the truth. Because I certainly would rather be offended myself than to offend the one I worship. So I'm hoping that we would all have that same humility, that we would all be willing to listen and all be willing to evaluate. Because, listen... If you're human, we all have baggage. That's just the way it works. If we're human, we all have preconceived notions, preconceived ideas, worldviews, perspectives based on how we've lived and what we've experienced. That's just the way it is. And as believers, it's important that we can openly, honestly evaluate what we believe and ask, does it correspond with Scripture? Because if you believe you're beyond that, or you're self-deluded, because Scripture shows that that's simply, simply not the case. I want to refer to another source, another group of people here. This is actually from history.org, the History Channel, uh, the website for that. And it says, in the, se- in, in the early 17th century, wave of religious reform changed the way Christmas was celebrated in Europe. 
When Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan forces took over England in 1645, they vowed to rid England of decadence and, as part of that effort, canceled Christmas. But popular demand, Charles II was restored to the throne, and with him came the return of the popular holiday. The pilgrims, English separatists, that came to America in 1620 were even more orthodox, meaning they were more strict in their Puritan beliefs in Cornwall. As a result, Christmas was not a holiday in early America. From Listen to this. This is quite remarkable. It says from 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was actually outlawed in Boston. Anyone exhibiting the Christmas spirit was fined five shillings. So in addition to the Puritans, we also see here the Pilgrims banned Christmas. In fact, from as I just read, from 1659 to 1681, Boston actually outlawed this observance, and they would find those who showed a Christmas spirit. Isn't that remarkable? Especially when we're considering Boston. And you know, no, no offense to those from Boston watching. It's not known, though, as a very conservative part of the nation today. In Boston, it says they outlawed those who showed even a Christmas spirit. Now, if you had to guess, how many churchgoers today would know this history? would know that at some point in this nation, in the early parts of this nation, that many, many banned Christmas because it had no biblical sanction. You know, I think we would all agree very few. Very few would understand this. Very few would realize the history of this day and that there were many, or some anyway, in the early church here in this nation who refused to observe this because of what it stood for and because it had no biblical sanction with it. I want to move on now and talk about some of the traditions of Christmas, and I want to focus on the uh, Christmas tree, the Yule log, and Santa Claus. So those are the three traditional things we're going to talk about today, and we'll probably go through these a little bit quickly here, but I'm going to focus first on the Christmas tree. Now, we know that tree worship, tree worship has been invoked for for millennia, for, for hundreds, thousands of years really thousands of years. Here's what we read from the Golden Vow. It says, tree worship is well attested for all the great European families of the Aryan stock. Among the Celts, the oak worship of the Druids is familiar to everyone. Sacred groves were common among the ancient Germans, and tree worship is hardly extinct, even among their descendants at the present day. So we find here that, again, tree worship is, is very well established, this is not something new. And again, even though the Christmas tree may be somewhat of a new phenomena based on the thousands of years of mankind's history, the concept of tree worship and what it represents and symbolizes is not new because it symbolizes this concept, again, of fertility and, and rebirth. That goes all the way back to Babylon. But again, it mentions here the Celts and the Druids and the Germans. You know, we see a lot of a lot of false worship of the Germans. Those were the ancient Teutons or the Teutonic people. And we see so much paganism coming, even paganism that we can trace back to this day, back to this worship. Now, there's another source here, and this is from abc.net. It's an article entitled The Christmas Tree from Pagan Origins and uh, Christian Symbolism to Secular Status. 
So as uh, evergreen trees and plants have been used to celebrate winter festivals for thousands of years. So again, this is nothing new. You know, this concept of, of using trees as some sort of form of worship, and again, most often is a form of fertility, a form of new life. It says, long before the advent of Christianity, pagans in Europe used branches of evergreen fir trees to decorate their homes and brighten their spirits during the winter solstice. Early Romans used evergreens to decorate their temples at the festival of Saturnalia. Notice that. Isn't that amazing? Even during the time of Saturnalia, during the time of Rome, would they take these evergreen, these, these uh, branches, and bring them into the temples? This is nothing new. It says, well, ancient Egyptians used green palm rushes or as part of their worship to the, of the god Ra, evergreen fir trees covered in snow. The idea of bringing the evergreen into the home house represents, again, fertility. It's all about fertility. You know, so it's amazing the, 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 the worship we find with the nominal worship that traces back to the fertility. This is also true, by the way, of Easter. If you look at Easter, you understand the verse of Easter. It's all about new life and fertility, the eggs and the bunnies and all of that. It's, it's paganism and it's fertility and it's an abomination to our Father in heaven. That's the bottom line. Represents fertility and new life in the darkness of winter, which was much more of the pagan themes, Dr. Dominique Wilson from the University of Sydney said. Thus also where the ideas of the holly and the ivy and the mistletoe come from because they're the few flowering plants at winter, so therefore they hold a special significance. So the idea of bringing evergreens into the house started there, and eventually that evolved, listen, into the Christmas tree. So this is the history of the Christmas tree. These are the connections a Christmas tree has to tree worship. This is nothing new. Some may say like Jeremiah chapter 10, 2 through 5 is not referring to a Christmas tree. I acknowledge that. But also acknowledge that the Christmas tree is not alone. It is not something different. It is not unique. The same symbolism, the same origins, the same reason why we do Christmas trees today ushers back thousands of years ago. It is nothing new. It is simply fertility worship. It is new life. And it is something that Yahweh would say that he loathes, that he finds abhorring, and that he would define as an abomination. As a side note, according to some tradition, the Christmas tree also goes back all the way back to Nimrod. It's believed that that, uh, Nimrod married his mother Semiramis, and uh, upon Nimrod's death, he was then reborn through an evergreen that sprang up from a dead stump. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I was doing some research. But certainly, there are many historians that believe that this concept of tree worship goes all the way back. And it's, you know, it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, so much of pagan worship goes back to this Babylonian worship. So much of what we see goes back to this source. I want to move on now and talk about the Yule Log. Now, I normally don't quote pagan sources. I make it a habit of not quoting pagan sources. But I'm going to make an exception today. I'm going to quote from two pagan sources because, you know, in some ways they have no axe to grind. I mean, they understand the history, and they, they acknowledge, they embrace what these items symbolize. So, wicca.com, and I'm not going to dwell on this simply because of the source, but here's what it says about Yule Log. It says, the ceremonial Yule Log was a highlight of the Solstice Festival. In accordance to tradition, the log must either have been harvested from the householder's land 
were given as a gift. It must never have been bought. Once dragged into the house and placed in the fireplace, it was decorated in seasonal greenery, doused with uh, cider or L, and dusted with flour before set ablaze by a piece of last year's log held onto for just that purpose. The log would burn throughout the night, then smolder for 12 days after being ceremonially put out. Ash is the traditional wood of the Yule log. It is sacred wood tree of the Teutons. Again, this is the ancient Germans, which really was, was so pagan in so many ways. Teutons. It says, an herb of the sun, ash brings light into the hearth of the solstice. Symbolism of Yule, rebirth of the sun, the longest night of the year, the winter solstice, introspect, planning for the future. So again, this is everything to do with fertility. This concept of rebirth of the sun, as it says here. I'm going to quote from one more source here, from pagancentric.org. It's about the Yule Log. That's the title of the article. It says, a Yule Log has been associated with having its origins in the historical dramatic paganism. The Teutons, the Teutonic people, dramatic paganism, which was practiced across northern Europe prior to Christianization. One of the first people to do so was the English historian Henry Bourne, who in the 1720s described the practice occurring in the Tyne Valley. Bourne theorized that the practice derives from the customs in 6th and 7th centuries Anglo-Saxon paganism. And by the way, that's also where Easter comes from, this Anglo-Saxon connection. Same thing here. Robert Chambers, in his 1864 book, Book of Day's Notes, that two popular observances belonging to Christmas are more especially derived from the worship of our pagan ancestors. You see, these people have no axe to grind. They accept this concept. They understand it. They know where it comes from. And they acknowledge here that the roots derives back to this, this Germanic paganism, this, this ancient paganism of the Celts and uh, of that part of the world. It says, the hanging up of the mistletoe and the burning of the Yule log. So this uh, concept of the Yule log, the Christmas tree, there's nothing biblical, there's nothing scriptural. These items were borrowed by paganism for one reason, and that was to uh, mimic, that was to worship, that was to adopt the paganism of the nations around them. And most of the time, this was done to bring people into the church. It was done to it was done as a form of compromise. That's why it was done. You know, it's so easy to compromise Yahweh's word, and we see so much of a history with compromise throughout through, throughout the early church and 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 throughout the history of the church. And this is just one of many examples. But again, we see here undoubtedly, we see here without question where these things arose, and the Yule log arose through paganism has no connection to Christianity, never has, it never will. This is pagan to the very core. Well, let's look at the last tradition, and that is good old St. Nick. So where does, where does Santa Claus come from? Or we know many will say that Santa Claus, and I think this is in part true, traces back to a man named, or a monk, St. Nicholas. Now, tradition says that St. Nicholas was born sometime around 280 CE, near modern-day Turkey. Tradition also says that he was known for his piety, for his humility, for his kindness. It's believed that he gave most of his wealth away 
to the poor and to help the needy and to help the sick. Now, the first mention to this man in America was at the end of the 18th century. In December 1773, a New York newspaper reported that a group of Dutch families had come over and commemorated the anniversary of St. Nicholas. Now, while Santa Claus, I think, does have some connections to this St. Nicholas, I'm not going to dismiss that outright, I do believe that the tradition goes back even further. I believe that this concept of St. Nicholas or Santa Claus or good old St. Nick goes back much further than this monk known as, again, St. Nicholas. According to a book, kind of a comical title in some ways, Santa Claus, Last of the Wild Men, we find here possibly another, another historical connection with this with this mythical figure. It says, Children would place their boots filled with sugar, carrots, or straw near the chimney for Odin's flying horse, Slipner, to eat. Odin would then reward those children for their kindness by replacing Slipner's food with gifts and candy. This practice revived in Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands after the adoption of Christianity and became associated with St. Nicholas, and as a result of the process of Christianization, and can be still seen a modern practice of the hanging of stockings at the chimney in some homes. And here's a picture of Odin and Slipner. Of course, it kind of reminds me of another mythical figure, Santa Claus and his faithful reindeer. Both could fly, both gave gifts, so on and so forth. But here we, again, see a connection. We see a connection to something much older than St. Nicholas, this monk, going all the way back to Norse mythology, to this pagan mythology of of Odin. I want to transition now and talk about what the Bible actually says about Odin. Yahshua's birth. So we're going to dispel some of the rumors, some of the misinformation, some of the lies, and, and weed through all the, all the tradition that we find and get to the root of the issue. So what does the Bible actually say about the Messiah's birth? Number one, does it give any indication as to when Yahshua was born? Again, the tradition is that he was born December 25th. Now, while we don't know the the month, really, although I think we have a pretty good indication, the month and certainly the day, I think we can pinpoint the season and maybe even come close to pinpointing the month. Now, we see evidence for this in Luke 1. This is going to take just a few minutes to explain, so stay with me. Stay with me on this. So Luke 1, and we're going to read 5 through 13. It says, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia. Now remember, remember, notice here the course of Abia. We're going to really focus on that, the course of Abia. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before Elohim, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of Yahweh blameless. And by the way, that's an example of obedience we find in the New Testament. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were 
now well stricken in years, kind of like Abraham and Sarah. Of course, I don't think she was quite that stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before Elohim in the order of his course, and again, what course? The course of Abiah. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of Yahweh, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at that time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of Yahweh standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayers is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Now, where do we find proof here for the Messiah's birth? Or in verse 5, we find that Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, served in the temple. And that his course was of the course, it says, of Abiyah. Now, how does this help us in determining the, the date or the timing of Yahshua's birth? Well, from the Old Testament, we know that there were 24 courses. And we also know that they, these courses began the month of Abib, occurring between March and April. Now, each priest could serve from Sabbath to Sabbath, or would, would serve from Sabbath to Sabbath, and they would do this twice a year. Now, as we see in 1 Chronicles 24, verse 10, Abiyah was of the eighth course, of the eighth course. That's important to understand. So it starts in March, April, eight weeks into it, the eighth course. So from this, what do we know? We're based on the fact that Abiyah falls between late March and early April. We can surmise that Zechariah's course would have fallen somewhere around probably the beginning of June. And as we'll see here in Luke, this was also the time when John the Baptist was conceived. It says that here. This was when John the Baptist was conceived, when he was serving in the temple during his course, during his time. Now, before we can determine the Messiah's birth, there's one more piece of the puzzle missing. So I want to continue reading here. And this is a, we're going to skip down to Luke 1, verse 26, and read through verse 31. It says, in the sixth month of the uh, sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from Elohim into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. Well, evidently, Mary was a very righteous person. Yahweh is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with Elohim. And behold, thou shalt, con uh, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Yahshua. We see here that six months after Elizabeth's conceived or conception of John the Baptist, that Mary conceived Yahshua the Messiah. So based on the fact that John the Baptist was six months older than Yahshua, when was Yahshua likely conceived? So this, we just simply need to do the math. If John the Baptist was conceived in early June, and if Yahshua was conceived six months later, this would place Yahshua's conception in 
or near December. Assuming for a normal duration of pregnancy, the Messiah would have been born then somewhere around September. Based on this, it's possible, and many believe this, that Yahshua could have been born during the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, to help visualize this, here's part of a chart. Or here's a chart, I should say, from the Restoration Study Bible. So we see again Yahshua's birth based on the course of Abia. So John's conception would have been around in June. Would have placed Yahshua's conception in December. John's birth would have been sometime in March, in the spring. Placing Yahshua's birth sometime in the fall during September. So we see again the timing. So we don't know the day. Certainly we can't for sure know the month, but certainly it was not December 25th. And from all indication, again, it was sometime in the fall, sometime near September, maybe October, but the math indicates September. Sometime during that month or during that time frame, the Messiah was likely born. But again, this concept that he was born in December is simply not true. Well, let's now talk about shepherds. The Christmas story goes that shepherds received a miraculous vision, the message about the infant Messiah in the field on December 25th. So as we'll see, only part of this story is true. This tradition is true. Some is, some is not. So let's read about this account. Go to the scripture, see what it actually says. Luke 2, 14 through 18 says this, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly posts, praising Elohim, and saying, Glory to Elohim in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem. And see this thing which has come to pass, which Yahweh hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, they went in a hurry, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe, the infant, lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child, and all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So we find that Yahweh revealed the birth of his son, Yahshua, to shepherds. You know, considering that Yahshua is compared to a shepherd, you know, makes sense that this would have been done. I think there's a lot of great symbolism, analogy here as to why this is so fitting. So we see here that there is some truth to the Christmas tradition. There is some truth. We see here that shepherds did witness the infant Messiah. But what about December 25th? What about December 25th? Or based on what we know about shepherds, this is, I'm going to say impossible. Most would say highly unlikely maybe, but but this isn't possible based on what we know about shepherds. I'm going to, historically we know the shepherds were not in the fields in December, in the dead of winter. This simply would not have happened. You know, remarkably, Most scholars agree with this, and I'm going to read an excerpt from Barnes Notes, one of my favorite sources. It says, 
this. It says, remaining out of doors under the open sky with their flocks. This was commonly done. The climate was mild, and to keep their flocks from straying, they spent the night with them. It is also a fact that the Jews sent out their flocks into the mountainous and desert regions during the summer months and took them up in the latter part of October or the first of November when the cold weather commenced. While away in these deserts and mountainous regions, it was proper that there should be someone to attend them to keep them from straying and from the ravages of wolves and other wild beasts. It is probable from this that our Savior was born before the 25th of December, or before what we call Christmas. At that time, it is cold, and especially in the high and mountainous regions about Bethlehem. But the exact time of his birth is unknown. There's no way to ascertain it. A different learned man, it has been fixed at every each month in the year, nor is it of consequence to know the time. You know, and that's a, that's a really good point, by the way. It is of not consequence. You know, if Yahweh wanted us to worship his birth, what do you think he would have done? He would have given us the date of his birth. He would have said specifically, worship the Messiah's birth on this day, just as he does for the Passover, just as he does for all the other feast days. He he gives us the dates, the times, when we are to observe these observances, these festivals, these special times, but we don't see that. And again, as we find here, it's of no consequence because we're not to do it. So as if it were, I'm going to say Elohim would have preserved the record of it. Matters of moment are clearly revealed. Those which he regards as of no importance are concealed. Isn't that amazing? So what do we find from the source? Well, we see here that Based on this, now says it is probable, I'm going to say, based on my study, it is impossible. The shepherds would have been in the fields on December 25th watching over the flocks. This would not have happened. The shepherds would, would not have been out in the fields at this time. And for this reason, this concept that they were there December 25th, and it just shows that this, again, is simply not true. Another tradition based on falsity, based on tradition, with absolutely nothing to support it. There is, as the pilgrims or Puritans would say, there is no biblical sanction for December 25th and shepherds being in the fields receiving this miraculous call. It simply would not could not happen. Now, in addition to shepherds, we also know that the Bible mentions wise men. Now, the story goes that three wise men visited the infant Messiah in the manger and gave him three gifts. Now, again, like the other tradition, part of this is true, part of this is not. So as we saw with the shepherds, we only see partial truth. So let's read about this, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to read 1 and 2 and then skip down to 10 and 11. It says, Now when Yahshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Notice that. Pay attention to what it says here. King of the Jews. You see, this is what they were doing. They were looking for the king of the Jews. For we have seen a star in the east 
and are come to worship him. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, house, they saw the young child with Mary and his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So another, other than the wise men here, Visiting the Messiah and giving three gifts, much of the traditional story is unfounded. It is based on tradition without proof or evidence. There's no mention here to the number of wise men. Certainly no mention here of a manger. They were not there to worship his birth. They were there instead to worship the king of the Jews. You see, they, they understood, for whatever reason, Scripture doesn't, give us how they understood this truth. And there's many theories. I'm not going to even conjecture today as to who the wise men were. But they understood Yahshua to be the king of the Jews, rightfully so. And they were there again to honor him, to worship him as the king of the Jews. Now in verse 16, we find about how old Yahshua would have probably been. Oh, by the way, What's wrong with this picture? So as we as I note here, the Bible does not mention three wise men, only three gifts. The wise men visited the boy Messiah, not, not the infant Messiah. And the wise men visited the house, not the manger. It's amazing, again, the falsity we find within the word, or I should say within tradition. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, he was angry, he was upset. And it sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So we find here that Herod, in his wrath, in his anger, murdered all boys two years and under. Now, why do you suppose he began with the age of two? Well, more than likely, based on the evidence, Yahshua was near this age when the wise men came to visit, when he inquired and was informed of the Messiah. So again, the wise men did not come to the manger to visit an infant or babe, as it says within the word. No, they were there to visit the boy, Yahshua, in the home. And he, he was likely around the age of two. You know, there are many, many contradictions between tradition and what the Bible actually says. And, is, and this is especially true when it comes to Christmas. And the fact that, again, it comes from paganism, and, and that is a fact that nobody can dispute, is, a day, is, is the reason why we should abstain from this time. This day is nothing more than an amalgamation, a blending of different pagan traditions eventually adopted by the church because of the threat it posed. I want to summarize a few points now with you. Here's a summary. So the Bible, number one, warns against adopting pagan worship and learning the ways of the heathen. So we understand that. No man knows precisely when the Messiah was born. December 25th was adopted from pagan Roman pagan worship as 
the birthday for the Messiah. And the last, or we have another slide, but the last one on this slide is tree worship was common in the ancient world. The Yule log represents the rebirth of the sun. And a Santa Claus, or good old Saint Nick, may have roots to Odin in Norse mythology. Moving on here, the Bible does not mention three wise men, only three gifts, and they were not there to worship his birth, but there to honor the king of the Jews. The wise men did not visit the infant Messiah in the manger, but the boy Yahshua in his mother's house. While the shepherds were with the Messiah in the manger, they were not there in December. And lastly here, based on the biblical record, the Messiah was likely born around September. And I pray that this message has been a blessing to you. I hope that it's helped you. This is a review for most of you. I hope it has helped you reinforce why we don't do Christmas. And for those who may be new, and I want to sort of give a special word to those who may be watching this for the first time. You know, this may be foreign to them or foreign to you. And I would simply ask that you consider what I've said. Consider what I've said. Look at the evidence and realize that at the end of the day, you know, Scripture says we must all work out our own salvation. So I would encourage you just to look at it, consider it, because it is truth. It is supported in Scripture. And as we see that if we're going to please the one we worship, we must follow him. We must obey him. And we must refrain from anything that would oppose, anything that would offend him. And worship that is adopted from paganism is an offense to him. May Yahweh bless you.